0: welcome to god is open i am your host christopher fisher today on god is open we are just going to go over some basics of plot and plot structure and to do this we're first going to turn to a secular work and uh, just examine how a story is written what kind of uh, things we look for in plots plot developments character arcs and uh, driving motivations is very important in in crafting a plot and from this, we're going to take principles that we learn in just any narrative and then apply that to looking at stories from the Bible, understanding those stories. So I have pulled up uh, a short story. Our short stories are pretty good because, you know, they're, they're short and you could digest them pretty easily and it's, it's a lot harder to just try to make something more complicated than it is if it's just a short story. And so I have pulled up the censors, and this is a fascinating short story that I read first in high school. And so this is about, this is by uh, Luisa Venezuela, and this is about an individual who becomes a censor. He's in maybe a totalitarian state, and this poor guy becomes a censor in order to subvert his own letter that he sent. He had sent a letter in earnest to a girl whose address he got, and his letter was very benign. But, but of course, in a totalitarian state, they look for subversive messages in any type of action that anyone was taking. So even a harmless letter they're going to read into in order to, to make it subversive. And then he's going to get in trouble, and the girl he's sending the letter to is going to get into tr- trouble as enemies of the state. So that's kind of the plot basics. So it starts with this poor guy, Juan, and he learns through a confidential informant the address of a girl who he'd like to send a message to. And he really really likes this girl. He's interested in her. And so he enthusiastically writes this letter and sends it off. And then he thinks about it. You know, we all do things in haste. And uh, we later look back and say, well, that was kind of hasty. And he thinks this, this letter is going to have to go through the censor office. And what happens to these people whose letters go through the censorship office, they get thrown in prison or executed. So he thinks about this and he says, what can I do? What, how can I stop from endangering not only myself, but this girl that I like? And so he hatches a plan and the plan is a little bit half, uh, half thought out. It's, it doesn't make too much sense. He wants to join the censorship office, get a job in the office, in a hopes to intercept his letter so he can stop it before it's censored and then he is punished for that letter. So the censorship office, here's another interesting part of this plot. They understand that people are going to be joining their office for these alter, ter, ulterior motives. They understand that these... Agents are going to try to intercept their own letters just to save themselves, but they think to themselves, "Well, in the meantime, they're doing all this other work, and the chances that they're going to see their own letter are slim to none. So let's just hire these people to do that work." In the process, he gets the job. He starts doing it. He's very proficient. They, he starts off in in trying to detect explosives, and uh, you know, some sometimes people get hurt, and in one case. Uh, worker's strike was being organized, but he doesn't want that. That's a disruption to his schedule. And that's a disruption to his real goal, which is to find this letter. So he turns the guy in who's managing this strike. And as, as a result, he gets promoted. So he starts moving up the agency ladder, all these different rungs to higher and higher level jobs, more and more responsibilities. And he gets really deeply involved into his work. He cares a lot, he censors, he's crossing out things. He becomes the most proficient person at his job until finally he's put into the highest of the high sections where they're looking for any small details. And this consumes his life. He just goes to work and he works and works and works. He comes home, he goes to bed, and he neglects everything else. He neglects friends, he doesn't drink alcohol anymore because he is, becomes dedicated to his work. He becomes the best of doing this work. It's almost a fanaticism that takes over. And so surely enough, in this role, he he finally does come across his letter. Coincidentally, he edits it. He censors it just like normal, throws it in the bin with the rest of the letters. And just like everyone else whose letters he censors, he's executed the next morning. So that's a basic plot right there. So the basics of a story, you have some sort of character, some sort of main character, there's some sort of character arc, there's some sort of development in that character as the story progresses. There's someone we can relate to and see things through their eyes. We also are juxtaposed with the view of the narrator, which at time, times our perceptions converge with Juan, we see what he sees, we understand his motivations, and sometimes they diverge. They, they split apart. So in in the beginning, we understand one, his love for this lady, his earnestness, how eager he is to write this letter. And uh, we, we could relate to that. We understand that people can do stuff in haste through excitement and then later regret it. And we feel bad for him because we know that his actions are very benevolent and the government is this system, it's corrupt. And he might be punished for something that he didn't intend to do. The government might think he's a subversive agent of the state when in reality he's not. And it's just because of the way the government functions. So we really feel for Juan at the beginning of this story. We know what he thinks and we can understand his motivations and we understand his, his fears. And it talks about him losing sleep at night. He's just sitting there wondering what's going to come of him and this girl he likes if they're going to be thrown in prison and killed. And we, we, could, we could empathize with that. And so his plan we could also empathize with. He wants to intercept this letter such that, such that he, he could forego this execution. He wants to stop the system, the corrupt system, from turning against him. And so he sets out to do that. That's a noble goal, and we identify with that goal. But in the process, we see some sort of character development within Juan. We see him, in order to get to where he needs to be, in order to see his own letter, in order to stop it at the level he needs to be, he starts taking on a very systematic methodology to get where he needs to go. So he's turning in people. Even though he might agree with this strike that uh, these workers want higher pay for dangerous conditions, even though he might agree with that, his primary goal is to get that letter and so anything that comes in the way of him and that goal no matter how much he likes those things he's gonna he's gonna just run over those things he's gonna push them out of the way he's going to subvert those subversive activities because that's going to jeopardize his ultimate goal so he becomes very focused in this overall goal and he wants to at all costs get to where he needs to be so he doesn't care who he hurts in the process and we see this transition through the story as Juan becomes more and more dedicated to his work until finally it's his character, it's his nature. He's neglecting his friends. He's neglecting himself. And it's not even something that he's getting internal pleasure from. He's, he's just changed his one noble goal to this new mission in life. And it's just this fanatical execution of his job. And this, of course, uh, shows us what possibly has happened throughout any system, any government where normal people who are otherwise good actors are subverted by the system. They're changed by the system because of the incentives that they are approached with. And we could we could really understand, even though we know Juan has gone off the deep end, that uh, he his perception of reality is skewed. He's seen all these subversive agents. he's he's censoring all these letters. As if, as if all sorts of people all over the country are jeopardizing their own lives to write secret messages all over the country. And he thinks everyone's trying to overthrow the state. So he loses all touch with reality. And we, we, we understand that that's what he thinks. And we understand why he thinks that. But there's a divergence there. We understand that he's lost touch with reality. So we could, we could empathize with him, we could understand this character even though we might disagree with his actions. And some parts of this story, the writer writes in such a way that it's not quite obvious that the writer disagrees. Like let's take this paragraph for example, it says, Soon his work became so absorbing that his noble mission blurred in his mind. So absorbing, that's kind of a bad word. That means, uh, you know, something's getting taken on. His work is becoming absorbing. He's becoming a workaholic. His noble mission is being blurred. Blurred's kind of a bad word. It's becoming fuzzy, not so clear. Day after day, he crossed out whole paragraphs in red ink, piteously chucking, piteously chucking. So pity is a good thing. Not having pity is a bad thing. Chucking is kind of just like a tossing out there. So just... Just the words that are being used are being used for emotional emotional leverage on the audience. We understand that the way this paragraph's written, it's written almost in a way to emphasize to us as the reader that his perception of reality is being skewed. It's being uh, perverted. The things he's doing, he might be doing in earnest. But it's a divergence from a noble goal, and his actions now serve a lesser goal, a goal that isn't so noble. It says, These were horrible days when he was shocked by the subtle and conniving ways employed by people to pass on subversive messages. His instincts were so sharp that he found behind a simple, the weather's unsettling, or prices continue to soar, the wavering hand of someone secretly scheming to overthrow the government. Now, this sentence here is written almost in a sarcastic manner. We understand as as keen audience, as keen readers, that this it's not a serious paragraph. He's not finding actual messages trying to subvert the government. Just the way it's written, the words are meant to convey to us an irony, an irony that this guy is so lost touch with reality that he's just finding attempts to overthrow the government and in everything he's reading. It doesn't matter what comes to him, he's gonna find some sort of scheme to overthrow the government. He's lost all touch. He's he's just gone mentally. And the paragraph's not obvious. And it takes a keen reader, someone who understands the plot, the context, to understand what what this paragraph is doing. It's not it's not serious. It's not it's not conveying that this guy's actually foiling plots against the government instead because of the language we understand that this this paragraph in itself is ironic it's kind of mocking this guy it's kind of kind of uh, saying that this his fanatic dedication that we can understand his fanatic dedication with the words being used but it's off base it's out of touch with the reality and so in the end the final act the conclusion is is this fanaticism is his own undoing. And from that, we understand that that's how the state operates. It's it's a parable. It's a message about the overall operation of the state, how the system subverts individuals, how the system corrupts individuals. And Juan is an object lesson for this. All right, let's talk briefly about supporting characters. We have various supporting characters throughout this story. And in order for a story to be good and believable, all the different actors have to have believable motives. The best the best uh, movies that we watch, the, the villain has just a better motive than, oh, I want to destroy stuff. Like if you're watching Captain Planet and all the villains are like, I just like to pollute and that's the, what my goal is. And no, that's not a very good character motivation. Their character motivation has to be real. Like for example, in the movie Watchmen where... The character, the bad guy, his his actual goal is to create world peace. And he's trying to do it through this uh, mutually assured destruction thing where if he creates this sense that that if anyone acts up, then the whole world's going to get destroyed, he thinks he could create world peace through that methodology. And so it gives him something that we can relate to. We can understand why he's doing what he's doing. And the actors in the story, of course, is the agency, the government agency that's hiring the censors. Now, what's their motivation? They just want workers to censor letters. So they're practicalists. They're realists. They understand that sometimes people are going to get these jobs and those people aren't going to be the most dedicated to the state. But what do they care about? Do they care about one or two letters getting in? And they understand that these letters are actually benign. There's there's no real attempts to overthrow the government. But they just got a job to do. They got numbers that they gotta report and and they just care about work being performed. So even if someone's getting into the system in order to stop one or two letters, they would rather have those people than not have those people because that letter in itself is probably not going to be seen by that individual. And even if it is, it's probably not a bad letter in the first place. So that's their motivation. So they play their part. We got other actors in there. We got uh, those people who care about their jobs, their lives, who want to have strikes for higher wages due to hazardous working conditions. And their goal is to improve their own lives, the lives of their family. We also got the mother that's introduced in the story. So Juan has a mother, and she sees this development in him, this change in his attitude. And so she tries tries to change him back, and she tries to do this through lying to him. She says, you know, all your friends, they're all wondering where you are. And at one time, this might have been true. Like when Juan first started uh, converting into this workaholic, this person who's dedicated to this, this mission of censorship. His friends might have, might have uh, talked to him, might have tried to get him to come out with him. And, but then they gave up after a while, after he kept coming, going deeper and deeper down into his descent, into his delusions. And so they've completely given up. The only people that are left, the only person that's left who cares about him and his mental state is his mother. And that signals to us as the audience of how how far removed from reality he is when the only person he's got left is his mother. And even she can't get through to him and she lies to him. She says, all your friends are at the bar. They're wondering where you were and that information is often a lie because they've they've all given up hope on this individual so her motivations make sense the censor's motivations make sense even the people who in the end execute them although they're tangentially related to this all we understand their motivations as well They're cogs in the system as well their motivations is to continue their own lives and just just play out their role in the system Just like Juan was doing, just like everyone else in this story, they're all playing their roles as cogs in the system and their motivations make sense. And we can understand why they're doing what they're doing. Are they inherently bad people? The people executing other people? No, they're just like Juan where they've been, they've been changed by the system. The system gave them perverse incentives and that has changed them from possibly good people to the bad people. So this whole story works in all these elements. You have all sorts of characters introduced in the story. Their motivations make sense. Their actions in the story make sense. They're logical. You got all these uh, plot points, these, these shifts, these, these events that happen. And the events, they, uh, they give something. They, they change the character, the main character, in ways. They shape the main character. And, and that's what this whole plot does. This is how the plot works together. You got your initial actions. You got your initial setup. You got your initial introduction of your main characters. You got some sort of motivating actions uh, coupled with events, and that affects some sort of changes on the characters throughout the stories. Whereas when the story ends and concludes, it concludes with a different person, a different set of individuals in a different situation than when it started. And that's how a plot works together, that's how we understand a plot. So now we're going to flip to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is basically one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It has a lot of these plot elements, and we can really see how this plot is developed, the character motivations are fleshed out, and how the actions change motivations and lead to changes within the main character. Within Genesis 6, of course, this is the flood narrative. God has created the earth for his uh, temple in order to commune with man to make a creation that is loving, who loves him back, who does good things, who's righteous, but he looks upon the earth and uh, they're all evil. And so we see God's motivation and and it's stated not only by God, but the narrator. So we're getting multiple points of view and we got to watch these frame shifts within plots, within how stories are told. Who's saying what at one point of view, remember in the story about the censors that paragraph in which we're, we're seeing things from Juan's point of view, but we understand that his view is divergent from reality. So although we are identifying with him and seeing his thoughts, we understand it's out of whack. But Genesis six gives us both the narrator outside perspective, the third party neutral perspective and the main character motivations. And the main character in Genesis six is, of course, Yahweh. Yahweh drives the action. It's Yahweh's who who his his motivations and his changes drive the actions of the story. And Noah is introduced as a supporting character later in Genesis 6, and this is well after the main plot points have been established. So of course, God has created the world for community, for communion, for love, for righteousness to be his people. And they've rejected this they become wicked and corrupt and it says this the lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually so this is a plot twist so god did not intend this, this is not how he wanted things to turn out and so this drives a change within the character of yahweh genesis 6 and the lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and aggrieved in his heart what is he regretting is it is he just sad that man became evil no he's regretting his own action his initial creation remember he made man in order to be in communion with him in order to be his creation be his righteous people and they have failed in that and so who does god assign the blame to it's it's on himself he did the action he created the people and it turned out bad he's at fault in this situation It's grieving him in his heart. And this is coming from the narrator point of view. Then it switches over again to the first person point of view of Yahweh. In verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out men who I have created from the face of the land, man, animals, and creeping things, and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so this, this frame shifting is showing that God... Yahweh is in alignment with the, with the third-person narrator of the story. They're, they're, there's a convergence. They both believe the same things. The same motivations are ascribed. This is actually really what's happening in the story, and it's driving what happens in the story because, you know, what is the initial conditions? Man was made for a loving relationship that is subverted, which drives God's repentance and his decision to unmake his creation, which, which then results in an upcoming flood, something to wipe out that creation. We see motivations leading to actions, actions leading to, re- leading to changes in motivations, changes in outlooks. You see a real inter, intermingling of action and motivation. And that, that, well, that's what creates a good story, uh, creates a good plot that we understand. And so when people come to these texts, like these Calvinists, and they say, oh, these motivations aren't real, that's just condescending language, well, then the, then the whole entire narrative falls apart. You have just destroyed the intricate details that make this plot a functioning story, and it becomes just nothing. It, do, it doesn't work as a story. It becomes fiction. It doesn't, it doesn't even it doesn't flow. What is it, then? What, what are you left with when you destroy those plot elements? And you're not left with too much. So after this, Noah is introduced to the story. And he's a supporting character. This this is mainly about God and his interaction with mankind. Noah serves as some sort of bridge. Noah is going to be explaining why we still have mankind on earth. He's going to be the exception to this general rule. And it looks like he only finds favor in the eyes of the Lord after God has determined to destroy earth. So God destroyed determines to destroy earth and then afterwards decides to not destroy all of the earth but save alive Noah and his family and animals. This spawns an entire narrative that that focuses towards Noah and Noah's interaction with God. God explaining to Noah the ways that Noah can save himself from the flood and uh, Noah goes ahead and does that. But let's flip over to 8 towards the end. We'll go to the bottom. And uh, we'll see the conclusion of all of this. This whole narrative in which Noah rides out this flood, designed to wipe out everything, because God has repented that he had made man. God's creation has failed. And God, again, looks at this situation. And this is the conclusion. Noah gets off the ark. The, The whole flood is done. And Noah builds an altar to the Lord took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And then the Lord says this. He says, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of the man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so God has a change. There's there's something that He sees. There's something that He learns in this narrative. His character arc is He goes from happy that He's created man, curious that He's created man, to to sad that He's created man, to repentant, and He destroys everything. And then He turns into his his character arc concludes in him being uh, kind of jaded, kind of uh, um, ambivalent, almost. He, he he lowers his standards it, it's a, r- a real jaded feeling you get from this story that he's saying okay um i'm just i'm just not going to destroy the earth anymore even though man becomes wicked and even though it's disgusting i am not going to destroy them again i've lowered my standards i'm just going to live with this and so this is this is the character arc in the story and it makes sense and we understand god's motivations in the stories why he does the things he does why Noah does what he does, and why mankind does what he does. It it all makes sense. It all fits together as one coherent narrative. All right, so now we're going to flip over to the book, A New Heaven and a New Earth. And One of the things that this book does that I really like is it covers the plot of the Bible. There's other books that do this. Bob Enyard, of course, wrote a book called The Plot. I don't know if it covers it in quite the same way that... A new heaven and a new earth. Does his his focus more is on proving dispensationalism, which, which that's an element to understanding the plot of the Bible, but I, I don't think he quite captures what a new heaven and a new earth reclaiming biblical eschatology captures in the plot. And so, what is the plot of the Bible? I, you know, I I teach Sunday school. I ask the kids that, and that was that was the thing I tried to go over this last Sunday. What is the plot of the Bible? God created man for a love relationship and and this is captured in this book and let's we got pulled up it says the initial narrative sequence of the bible of level one of the plot is quite clear god creates the human race to the rule of the earth this is a biblical version of sequence sender agent task receiver and he goes over a plot plot structure and how plots work in this book so that it's, it's good in that sense as well He says, the original task in Genesis 2.15 is to work and protect the garden. Well, in Psalms 8, 5 through 8, humanity is entrusted with rule of the animal, life on the land, air and water. And and it's basically being man's, or basically the the plot is the initial narration, the initial sequence, the introduction is man is designed to be God's agents on earth. And this is subverted by plot twists within the bible mankind's fall they fall from grace they reject him of course this is echoed in the flood genesis 6 all mankind rejects god there and the whole biblical narrative that point on is god's attempts to restore the initial creation that god wants to return the earth to its its pre-flood conditions to its pre-fall conditions where it's god and humans, and humans are on earth exercising God's will and creating God's kingdom on earth. And we'll see the entire thrust of the Bible's towards this narrative. And this concludes, of course, this book is called A New Heaven and a New Earth Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. And this is why I identify with the Vineyard Movement and their kingdom focus, is that all this, these eschatological texts, the main focus is on this restored kingdom it's on restoring the earth to this this original plot this original this original initial condition which was subverted due to plot twists that the restoration of the kingdom is really the focus of the bible this restored renewed heaven and earth let's pull out a couple more quotes from this book yet genesis 8 understands the flood as an ultimately failed attempt at narrative resolution since the human heart has not changed, verse 21, and let's keep scrolling down. In the context of a failed human project, since sin with attendant violence has impeded and distorted the human calling to be an image of Dio on earth, an image of God, God intervenes in history to set things right. The initial move in this redemptive project is the calling of Abraham and his descendants Israel. Out of a now diversified human race, which has become the nations or families of the earth, the purpose of this calling or election is that they might be new agents or helpers precisely to impact the human race, their original agents, in the fulfillment of their original calling. And that sounds right. So there's different plot levels. There's different plot twists. And uh, we, we see that throughout the Bible these these different methods that God tries to reach human beings work with human beings to restore his kingdom on earth to the original condition that he wanted, his original vision for the earth. And and it's consistent in the Bible. And we we see God's character motivations. We see Yahweh's suffering, his anger, and uh, just when he gets subverted, how he deals with the subversion. And we see his emotions expressed throughout all of this. So the plot works together and makes sense. Character motivations are present, and plot twists, they add to the narrative. They add to God when he initially saw a man's kind of wickedness. Of course, his initial reaction is going to be sadness. He had not experienced this type of rejection before. And of course, you're not going to turn straight to anger, especially in this unexpected situation. And he initially blames himself and not the people. Sure, he blamed the people in some sense, but he's initially mostly blaming himself. Subsequently, after he becomes jaded by mankind's continual rebellion, then he starts introducing anger into these texts. When people keep rejecting him, sometimes he he responds in anger. And we understand that. We, we could see his motivations from what he's experienced previously. His past acts, his past experiences add to the narrative where we can identify with his emotions in the present it doesn't make sense the plot doesn't make sense if you just jump to the middle of the narrative to see oh god was angry with whatever people and sent the assyrians to punish them and we say oh that's evil well yeah we're pulling that out of context we're not understanding in what context this anger is felt what god has experienced up to this point in order to lead to these actions and only if we understand those previous plot points are we going to understand the motivations at that point in the plot. That's how plots work. That's how stories work. You can't just jump to a specific part out of context and then pretend that that's a standalone incident without, without a contextual understanding, without understanding character motivations that extend farther back than that one point. We, if we don't understand what the, that person has been through, We don't understand their motivations and actions in that one moment. I'm going to jump forward in this book to what I think is a very important uh, quote. It talks about Jesus' initial calling, and it says, However, it is important to note that in terms of the plot structure of the Bible, Jesus came initially not to save the world from sin, but rather to restore Israel to righteousness and blessing. Remember, Jesus said, I've come not except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't come for the world. He came in order to restore Israel to their priest status as a nation, which would then lead the world to God. That was his initial calling. And it wasn't until after the death of Jesus, when Jesus' sacrifice turned into a way of atonement for the rest of the world through the ministry of Paul. And that plot changed, that plot device, that plot switch those, those motivations, the, the change in attitude, the change in dealing with people. Yeah, that's that's why we have dispensationalists today, because they understand that plot development within the Bible. And they're not like these uh, other people who try to look at the Bible as a, as a coherent text in which none of the characters ever change in motivation. And they're all dealt with the same way throughout all of history. It's these people with a very static understanding of plot and how plot works. And they want everything to never change in any sense because they're dedicated to the idea that if there's change in how God deals with people, that introduces either uncertainty or unrighteousness or that jeopardizes the Bible's truth. Or in the case of classical theists, they think that jeopardizes God's attributes, such as omniscience, if there's these changing plot points throughout the Bible. But as we read plots, as we understand stories, we understand that ways of dealing with different people change as events shape characters. And Yahweh is definitely a character in the Bible, and he's definitely shaped throughout the Bible, and he definitely deals with different people in different circumstances. And so his original plans to just work directly with all of humankind to be his people on earth. That failed. His, his attempts to use individuals such as Abraham and Israel to affect the entire world to bring them to Yahweh, to bring them to God, that failed. And his plot point to go through the Jews after Jesus' death, that failed as well. And so Paul's ministry opened that up to the Gentiles where the Gentiles and Jews have equal status. And so that's where we are at today. It's, that's basically dispensationalism. If someone uses that word, I don't use that word in the sense of, oh, rapture and, and pre-trib, post-trib, whatever. I don't use it in that sense. I just use it in God changes based on the plot elements that we see within the Bible. And that, that's really the plot of the Bible. That's, that's how we get to where we are today and what we look forward to as, as eschatology, as the end times. The restored kingdom of God on earth. So that's just a quick down and dirty of plot, plot structure, how plots work, characters, some just basic elements of plots that we can really see within the Bible. And hopefully we'll get into this a little bit more in future podcasts, but I just like to set the base, set, set, set the initial structure of how to read stories, how to understand character motivations, and what kind of things that we could see in the Bible of how the Bible plays into how we understand how plots work. So if you have any questions or comments, please send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.